This intro is provided by recording artist John Maxim. It's a clip from his new single, Blame. Follow him on Instagram at John Maxim Music. I mess up, get dressed up, confess up the worst of my feelings are very mischieving. I struggle and blame myself. It's my fault. Welcome from the depths of darkness to the light of success. This podcast is brought to you by our sponsor, Compass Nine Media. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the Chris Wick Podcast. Chris Swick here from the podcast, From the Depths of Darkness to the Light of Success. Today, I got a great guest with me, Nick Nezik, who is a former OHL hockey player with the Niagara Ice Dogs and played with the University of Waterloo and now is a coach, an assistant coach with the Wilfrid Laurier women's hockey team. Want to take it away, Nick, and let them know a little bit about yourself, please? My story, I suppose. I'll uh, go high level and you dive in where you want to. Yeah, so, yeah, for sure. I grew up. Grew up in London, Ontario, played hockey my whole life there. School and hockey were the two biggest things for me, uh, family too, I suppose. Um, so I played hockey my whole life growing up. Had the opportunity when I was when I was six, 15, I guess, to get drafted to the Ontario Hockey League with the Niagara Ice Dogs. Um, so I kind of started my junior hockey career, got to play for the Ice Dogs for a couple of years and had, a, had, a, had an amazing experience with that organization. And then kind of like a lot of junior hockey players, we get to the point where we have to be real with ourselves and say, what does my future look like? And for me, it was in education. I took my, took my opportunities with, uh, with some scholarship money and I went to the University of Waterloo and I got a degree there and an undergraduate degree in chemical engineering from, from UW. And then after that, kind of worked for a bit. And then I went, I'm now doing a master's degree in environmental engineering at Waterloo as well. And uh, when I was in my undergrad, I had the opportunity to play for Coach Bork and Ben Finelli, who I know you've had uh, as, as a guest before at, uh, at UW. So I played some hockey there. And then that was kind of the hockey and education quick snapshot. And then we hit a bit of a bump in the road when I was, uh, it was 2014. So I would have been 22. It was in the summertime. Everything was going great. I was actually in summer school here at UW and I was studying for uh, exams funny enough I was back at my parents house in London just because it was quiet there and I was studying late one night and just kind of noticed shifting in my chair noticed a, a bump and it was kind of one of those things where you notice a bump and you go huh it's weird you kind of forget about it for a few minutes and then you go back to it and you think about it and you're like that's that's really not okay like something's going on here was there some pain was there some pain with the bump that you had noticed no zero that's why it's so shocking so for me I, I had ended up, I'll fast forward and then we'll backtrack. I had testicular cancer. Um, so just noticed a bump, like shifting uncomfortably in my chair, as most guys can probably imagine. If there's something going on there, you're like, that's weird. So it was a Saturday night at like, I think we were pushing, we were past midnight at this point. So I was kind of hemming and hawing for a bit. And I said, forget, it. let's go to, to the Emerge. So I went to the Emerge that night and they kind of did like some quick blood tests and bedside ultrasounds. And they were like, well, we'll have you come back Monday for a full, full scale ultrasound. So I was like, okay, sure, whatever, come back Monday. So I went back Monday morning and it did the, uh, went for an ultrasound and the ultrasound tech kind of, they're not supposed to say anything, but kind of gave me a bit of a spoiler alert when she was kind of doing like chatty with you the whole time. No problem. Like, oh, what do you do? All this good stuff. We're shooting the breeze. And then uh, she switches from what was my quote unquote regular testicle over to the, to the enlarged one. And pretty quickly the chatter went from to just radio silence. I was like, okay. 
And uh, she says, uh, so Nick, who, who, who's here with you today? Anyone in the waiting room? I was like, oh, no, I just came by myself. Like, thought this would be a pretty routine operation. And uh, she goes, you might want to call someone. And then I didn't have to say anything to her at this point. I knew it was pretty bad. So uh, went back to the waiting room. After we were done, I was just kind of sitting there hanging out. And then uh, uh, um, one, of the, uh, one of the doctors, I think it was the doctor, called me up and said, uh, Nick. And I was like, yep, hey, what's going on? And keep in mind at this point, I'm in exam season. So I'm like in the ER waiting room, like with my biology textbook, like trying to read and study all this time. Cause it's something to just keep, whatever, keep your mind from wandering. Um, so uh, then they called me up. was like, oh, okay, sweet. I'm going to get out of here soon. And they go, uh, we're going to book you for a chest x-ray. At this point, I'm like, Are you sure you got the right guy? Like uh, chest x-ray is a long way from, from what we were just ultrasounding. They're like, doctor says chest x-ray i'm like oh we are in we are in deep water here right so this is not a good situation so they did the chest x-ray and then they had me wait in kind of like a little side waiting room and now i'm now the now the, the wheels are starting to turn a little bit and the close to the panic button we haven't hit it yet but we're close to it and then uh, uh a woman came into the room and scrubs and introduced herself as the chief of emergency at university hospital at in london and in my, right away then, I was like, oh, we're done here. The chief of emergency doesn't come to tell you, yeah, you're fine, get out of here. Like they send some, some pigeon residence student to do that. They don't send chief of emergency for good news. So what, kind of, what kinds of thoughts were going through your head at this point? Like, like mentally and stuff, you probably were just like drained and stuff like right away, eh? Like but your mind's probably racing. Yeah, so when I was sitting in that, after the chest x-ray, when I was sitting in that, in that bed in the side room waiting, uh, I was pretty fortunate. It's funny. That was in 2000, that was August of 2014. That would have been August 11th, which is literally yesterday was my six year anniversary of my diagnosis, which is funny. We kind of timed it to do this right now. <laughs> um, so six years ago yesterday, I was sitting there. I can remember it like it was yesterday. There was a poor lady that was in kind of, they put the curtains up for privacy, but you can hear everything in those rooms. This poor lady had kidney stones in the bed across from me. So I actually, like, it's terrible, but uh, she was actually really good for me because her pain, like physical pain she was in was like distracting for me. Cause like, oh man, like that's bad over there. Kidney stones, like that sounds terrible. Like she was in agony and I was sitting there like, well, I feel fine. And then, yeah. So, so her pain distracted me totally. It was really nice, which sounds bad, but <laughs> Anyways, so then the chief of emerge came in. Yeah, as soon as she said I'm chief of emergency in my head, I was like, oh, no. Like that, you know, when you just get bad news and everything just drops, like inside it feels like. Yeah, you, have, like, you get like that, that pit in your stomach almost. And you're like, what is going on sort of thing? And like the anxiety, well, for me personally, the anxiety just starts flaring up. And, you know, my mind would start racing and having all these thoughts that you don't want to have really like what's going to go on next and sort of thing. And what's the next step here? And, you know, what do I got to do now? And stuff like that. All these thoughts start racing through your head and you just can't think straight. I find. So that's, it's funny because it wasn't like so many things started happening. It was just like, everything just kind of went like black lined, like oh, okay. kind of went, just went dark, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that does make sense. It's just like, it went from like all this like crazy thoughts going through my head. And then she said, chief of emergency. I was like, and then just kind of like sat back a little bit. I was like, this isn't going to be good. And then 
I, I appreciate her. Some people I've told this story to, and some people say, oh, I can't believe that's how she approached it. And my head's like, nah, she did the right thing. She said, I'm so-and-so chief of emergency. Sorry to tell you, you have stage one testicular, or sorry, she said, you have testicular cancer. As of right now, it's not stage three. It's not in your lungs. Your lungs are clear. Um, you have testicular cancer. It's not in your lungs yet. We have to do a CT scan on your abdomen to determine if it's spread to stage two or not. So stage one, to, for everyone to understand, so stage one, it starts in your testicles, and then stage two, it would move up to your abdomen, and then if, if it was stage three, that's why they did that chest x-ray. It makes sense now then. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So for testicular cancer, it's usually, in almost all cases, it's pretty linear straight up the yeah. body. So stage, stage one is testicular, local to the testes. Stage two, it'll spread to your abdominal lymph nodes. Stage three is up to your lungs. Stage four is brain and beyond want to try and catch it right away sort of thing yeah exactly so with the that's why they did the chest x-ray because that's quick in picture out right so then if they see anything in your lungs in that picture they know right away how 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 bad of a situation we're in because then if there was something in the chest then they would have had to go and look at the brain so fortunately my chest x-ray was clear so they knew it was not there so then next step was the abdominal the ct scan abdominal ct scan which is a little bit more involved so that's why they, they, we did that later in the week to see if it was stage one or stage two at that point. We're still kind of in between. So yeah, she kind of dropped that on me and said, you're going to meet with um, uh, our resident urologist who knows more about this and he's going to have a conversation with you about the next steps. So then I kind of got shuffled off to a different side room and uh, then I was put into a different room and again, there was a curtain up and I, at this point I have to admit that there was someone across in the curtain that wasn't they were just being whiny I thought and in my head it took a lot for me to not like pull the curtain back and like unload my unhealthy anger that I basically was, tell them to shut up <laughs> yeah because like at that point now like I was going through like all the stages of grief in like a very short time frame so I was at the stage of anger and I wanted to just unload somewhere somehow and that poor person was this like within inches of being that poor person but I didn't I didn't I held on but then uh, yeah the gentleman came in who introduced himself as a resident urologist I don't know how to phrase that he's a re doing his residency in urology anyways uh, and he kind of talked to me a bit a bit a bit more about testicular cancer and what uh, the next steps would generally look like um, so the, I was pretty calm like have you do you watch Breaking Bad I have. I did watch it. Yeah. So you know the scene where Walters finds out. Sorry, whatever. The show's been out forever. Spoiler alert: If you haven't seen Breaking Bad yet, mute me for a minute. We uh, don't the, care. The scene when Walter <laughs> finds out that he has lung cancer, and he's just staring at the doctor. He's like, "You got a bit of mustard," and the the doctor's like, "You understand what's happening here, right?" And Walter's like, "Yeah, lung cancer, stage four, inoperable." Like he's just like that flat line. That's honestly the the urologist looked at me and was like, "You understand, like." what's going on here right it's like yeah yeah testicular cancer from stage one maybe stage two he's like you're i just trying to shove those feelings down and you don't want to really admit that this is what's going on eh absolutely yeah 100 percent. so i was just like so calm and like relaxed like yeah testicular cancer that's like uh stage one or two we'll figure out if we need surgery or what's next he's like okay like he was clearly uncomfortable with how calm i was um, now, exterior calm, interior, not so much. 
So yeah, then we, so that was on the Monday. So that was August 11th, 2014, which is a Monday. Uh, this is when he really thought that I was like not all there. Cause then he said, we're going to book you for surgery tomorrow, Tuesday, the 12th. And my first response was, uh, I got an exam tomorrow and I write an exam Thursday. Can we do it Friday? He's like, you, you what? like, no, that's not how this works. Like we got to do the surgery. Like we can't wait. It's like, why do you want to write an exam? We'll defer the exams later. And then in my head, I was like, well, it's, it's like, this is kind of good. And what I think saved me through a lot of this was, uh, my mentality was like, yeah, well, well, I'm going to go back to school. Like, I don't want to like miss this exam because I got other stuff to do. You know what I mean? Like it never went through my mind. Like this is cancer. Like you might be out of commission for a while. Like you might die. Like in me, I was just like, no, this is just like distractions on the side. Like, let me go live my life how I want to and how I have them. Um, so they agreed. They let me push the surgery from Tuesday to the Friday. So, um, the Monday I went and told my, my immediate family. So mom, dad, and two sisters in London left them with that, which was maybe unfair, but eh, whatever it happened to me. So I got to be a little bit selfish. And then I just, I went, so I was in London. I went back to Waterloo, wrote the exam Tuesday, wrote the exam Thursday, and then had a beer with buddies after the exam Thursday. And I wanted to tell them so bad after that exam. Um, but they had exams on the Friday. So I, so I was like, okay, like I had a beer with them after the exam. I was like, well guys, see you later. And then, uh, yeah, the surgery was Friday, Friday morning. So maybe I shouldn't have just admitted that I had a beer within 24 hours of the surgery, but whatever I did. Um, so I'm, I'm here. Um, so yeah, such is life. Yeah, exactly. So had the surgery Friday went great. No issues. Recovery was great. And then did like a monthly blood work just to see where my, cause testicular cancer, the nice thing about it is there's three pretty key blood indicators that they can just do with a quick blood, blood test and see where your marker levels are at. So all of them went down to zero pretty quickly and through, so that was mid August, September zero, October zero, November zero, did a blood test on like December 22nd or something like that. And then they called me on the 23rd. And that's another one of those moments where you just sink. As soon as you see private caller, for me now, I know that means the hospital is calling me. Like, you know what I mean? Like it's just this private caller on your caller ID, like when the hospital calls. So, and they never call unless it's bad. They never called to say, hey, man, everything's good because they're too busy, right? No, I, they don't have when, when I go to get stuff done too, same thing with tests at my doctor nowadays, you know, and I had some chest x-rays not too long ago just in case, you know, I had some problems going on and in, in my, you know, some pains and stuff and they took some, but they, I never got a call. So I figure everything's good, you know? What I mean? Yeah, because they, they're so busy. So they only call when it's bad. So as soon as I saw private callers, like, it was that feeling again. So I pick it up, I go, hello. And then I think based on my tone, they knew that I knew point of the call was my blood. All three of them had shot back up. So within a month, which is, I mean, not the most uncommon thing, um, but it goes back to what you said. It, they want to catch it as early as possible. Right? So within a month, things have gone from zero to not a hundred beyond a hundred for some of them. Um, so then, yeah. So they said, basically at this point, one of two things has happened. Either we didn't take the testicle out, fast enough back in August 
and there were some dormant cancer cells that have spread and now manifested into tumors in your abdomen. So the same, the same cancer just kind of was hanging around in the shadows, eventually like just hit its breaking point in the last and month. manifested into your, into your abdomens yeah. and your belly and stuff in your stomach. Yeah, exactly. So I had a few, so they thought either it had spread to my abdominal lymph nodes and I had tumors there or un, very unlikely, but possible the, a new cancer had come and it was testicular cancer in my healthy testicle. So they said, most likely it's the first case. Your cancer has just hung around and spread to your abdomen. So they gave me the news that I was going to be starting chemotherapy. Um, I was like, well, like, am I coming in today? How does this work? So they said, no, we'll give you like, take, take Christmas, be with your family for a few days here. And then I started on the December 27th of 2014. Um, so I started chemo and did another CT scan and sure enough, the CT scan showed that. So you have, I think 32 or 34 abdominal lymph nodes and I had, I had three tumors that had shown up. Two were very, very small and one was like, uh, like, uh, what did they say? I think it was like a golf ball. And normally they're supposed to be like a little, um, what are they called? Like those, those little beans that are, I don't know what they're called. Anyways, it doesn't matter. Small little, like, you know what I mean? A couple centimeters long and it had grown into a golf ball. So that was the main one that they were concerned about. So we did chemotherapy. So that was nine weeks of chemo. And then after chemo. How often did you have to do chemo then? Was it like every day or every other day? Or? Yeah. So then again, nice is a the nice thing about testicular cancer is that I was young and I was pretty fit. So they could, and they're to quote uh, an oncologist, we're going to hammer the shit out of you with chemo because you can handle it basically. So I was like, okay, as I understand is the most effective way to dose chemo. It's just that older people or immunocompromised people just can't handle that level of dosing. So that's why they do like infrequent treatments. So I did uh, a cycle of BEP, bleomycin, atopicide, and the moneymaker cisplatin. I say moneymaker because that's the good one. Uh, like it's really effective, it's good stuff. I did three cycles three weeks each for nine total weeks. So one three week cycle would be week one was Monday to Friday, like bash you over the head eight hours a day. That week sucked. Like what did you feel like at the end of every session or by the end of that week, you must've been just mentally and physically drained. It went, I'd say it was like a step function. Like each cycle got worse. So how one cycle would work is yeah, they hit you over the head for week one, eight hours a day, then week two and week three, they came in for a 30 minute treatment on Tuesday. That was it. So weeks two and three were essentially rest weeks. And yeah, by, so by, so you had three hell weeks essentially to get through. Um, the end of hell week one was more than anything, just mentally exhausting. Cause it's just like, like you just have time to sit and think, which I, you know, I need to be better at that, but I don't like that. So I was trying to distract myself as you've I've probably picked up on that already. Like I try to like do work, like, talk to friends, study, I don't know, just do something to take my mind off of it. I, I'm the same type of person too. I have to always be doing something like I was going stir crazy through the whole pandemic. You know, I just recently started back to my full-time job too, but you know, I'm, I'm grateful for that. But I was just, you know, you start stewing with your thoughts and stuff like that, especially at the beginning of the pandemic. I, I, I'm the type of guy that has to socialize or, you know, has to feel purpose in life. And, and, and not that I don't have a purpose in life, but I feel more of a purpose if I'm out doing something for myself or working or talking with people. I'm just that type of person that needs to socialize. I'm the same way. I need like that, that connection and, it, and like Zoom chats are great and stuff, but it's nice to just like, 
I don't, this doesn't make sense. Feel energy off of like people physically around you. Um, That's me, man. <laughs> I, I'm with you hundred percent. I'm with you. So the hell week one was just mentally just like, like a lot of sitting around a lot of, you know, twiddling my fingers. My mom fortunately got me one of those little Sudoku books and a pen. Yeah. So that was just me. <laughs> like I was Sudokuing like crazy. So that was the first week. Then the second week, physically started to, it started to shift from mental to physical. Um, you just feel tired. I was fortunate because they would, before you go in, um, they give you a dose of a steroid dexamethasone, which apparently now can help treat COVID side fact. But anyways, they give you a steroid because basically when there's whatever, 200 people in the chemo clinic for anyone who's God forbid seen the inside of those things, um, there's like just 200 beds and chairs kind of just on the outside of a big room. So physically, yeah, they give you a dexamethasone because they can't have 200 people throwing up as they're receiving chemo. So they, so this was to help you from not being nause- nauseous and stuff. Exactly. Eh? Exactly. Cause they can't have 200 sick people in a room. So they just can't, I, I use the phrase hit bonk you over the head. Like, cause it feels like that. Like they just smack you in the face with steroid to basically calm your body down. Um, but the side effect of that is it makes you so hungry. And when I got it, like those hell weeks, it was five straight mornings of this stuff. So I would go home and like, you couldn't sleep cause you're so uncomfortable physically when you go home. And I, so you're awake with your thoughts. I was like, I'm hungry. And I ate so much food, which is better than the opposite. Cause you see a lot of people go through chemo who really lose their appetite and they get really thin and then weak. I went the opposite way. Like I'm, I'm a tall dude, I'm six, five. And I normally weigh like 205, 210 pounds. That's kind of my typical range. And that's where I was when I started chemo. And within nine weeks, I ballooned to like 245. Oh, wow. And that was just because of how hungry you were after each session sort of thing? I would sneak out. I didn't tell my parents. I would sneak out after they would go to bed. Keep in mind, I'm 22 at the time. So I moved back home for chemo to London because just they were able to support me through this process. And that's amazing to have the family support that you do. Huge, 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 huge. Um, but I would sneak out <laughs> after they went to bed cause I couldn't sleep and I would go to like McDonald's and pick up a couple McDoubles. Like it was nothing or little Caesars hot and ready eh, five bucks. Let me just wolf down one of those before bed. So not good, but I did it. So, and I'm here. So, uh, that was the chemo experience. And then the hell week three, I hit a wall, like the physical, mental, everything wall. Um, like you'd come home kind of four or 5 PM. And I would just go straight to my room, lie in my bed with the light on. And they're, you know, when you're so exhausted, but like you're wired and can't sleep. I don't know if that feeling makes any sense. Oh, it does make total sense. Like I, I'm a recovering addict myself, you know, so like trying to go to sleep, but I'm on stimulants. Like I used to use cocaine and stimulants and stuff and stuff like that. And, and I, I know the exact feeling the light would be on and you'd just be laying there looking at the ceiling. I want to go to bed, but I can't sort of thing. Yeah. Something similar like that. When it's just like physically you're so exhausted and shut down, but then mentally you're just like, I can't sleep. So yeah. I was, uh, um, yeah, I was looking for anything. And then by that third week, I think if I had to stay on the chemo longer, I would have, my weight would have come right down. Cause that third week I stopped eating. So that's when you're, uh, you know, your hunger and stuff like that is sort of flipped your appetite flipped to the other way. Eh? Total flip. Like my mom would bring me just like simple things like a glass of ginger ale and like some toast with butter. And I was like, mom, I can't, like I couldn't eat it. 
So it was crazy how like the first two weeks it was like, I can't stop eating. And then something in that week three flipped is like, oh, I'm not eating at all. So, but at that point it was like, I was over the halfway point in my head. So on like the Tuesday, Wednesday of that final hell week, I was like, just get to Friday, just get to Friday, just get to Friday. Like that's all I kept saying to myself when there were those moments where I was lying in the bed at four or 5 PM. And I was just like, just get to Friday, just get to Friday. Cause I knew at that point I was like, if we can get to Friday, chemo's done. If we can get to Friday, chemo's done. And I just would keep saying that to myself over and over again. It was like counting sheep. Like that's how I fell asleep, was just boring myself saying that over and over again. But I don't know, you find things to help distract yourself. There it is again. This is like therapy for me. Like why was I distracting <laughs> myself so much? Yeah, like whatever. I went, pulled out like the old PlayStation 2 that I had kicking around, like that I had fired up in years. I did that. I listened to, there's a sports radio show I really like of Toronto. So I listened to those guys a lot because they're hilarious. But yeah, just distracting myself and then finally got through chemo. The final step of my cancer journey was, so chemo ended like February 26th. So now we're into 2015. I'd celebrated my 23rd birthday in the chemo clinic. Not ideal, not ideal to, for your 23rd birthday, um, but it was actually kind of cute. So the, um, the nurses every time, like I'm sure this is a standard, I don't know if it's in Canada or Ontario or whatever, when the nurse comes up to you before they'll give you anything, like they have their, their script in front of them and they have the drugs. So they come up to you and say, name, date of birth. Like they, that's just how they double check. That's their final check, I think, to make. Just to make sure they have the right person yeah. in front of them. Sort of yeah. Yep. So they were like, name, date of birth. So it's like Nick Nezik today. And she was like, what? And then she looks like, oh, happy birthday. And then the nurse that was there knew I like grilled cheese sandwiches from the calf. So she stuck me in a grill. You're not supposed to have food that smells and grilled cheese sandwiches smell so good from the calf <laughs> at London Health Sciences Center. I will give their calf a shout out. So she, she got me a grilled cheese sandwich. Like, oh, this is the best birthday ever. Like, that's all I wanted. So I was happy. Nice. I was happy. The nurses, uh, oh, they were like, I still keep in touch actually with one of them. Um, and they're, they're, I can, I'll never say enough good things about nurses. Those people are saints, especially in the cancer clinic. Like they see horrific stuff every day and I don't know how they do it. Um, but they're such nice people and they go so, especially like I can speak to my experiences as a London health sciences center. They went so far above and beyond what I thought a nurse's job is. And they were phenomenal. So I'll never say enough. That's amazing. Yeah, I'll never say no, for sure. Things I, I have friends that are nurses and stuff too, and they do. They go above and beyond, like just to make sure you're comfortable or yeah. you know, you got what you want, so you can get through that day for yourself and stuff. And it's amazing to see what they do for you. Yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty incredible. Um, so yeah, so then chemo ended late February. Then we did another CT scan, and I mentioned so I had those three abdominal uh, tumors. Two of them shrunk back to normal size, which was great. And the golf ball shrunk to, a, it shrunk by, I think they said it was around 50%. So we cut it in half, but it still wasn't small enough. So at that point they said, our options are we do surgery kind of now, or we can wait a year, wait two years. And if it grows, we got to do chemo again, surgery at that point. Or we just leave it, it never grows, and then we just keep watching it for the rest of your so life. So it just sort of sits dormant? Is that what you're trying to yeah. say Yeah, so if it was best case, it just we killed it, and it's just going to sit dormant. It'll stay there forever. That's best case. Yeah. Worst case is we leave it, we watch it, and then three years from now, 
it's grown. Now we got to do chemo again and we got to go in and do surgery. And then that, and that, at that point, you're probably thinking, all right, I don't want to get to that point again because you just went through hell and back doing this chemo the first time. Yeah. Chemo sucked so much in my head. I like my, I think my parent, my mom was with me. I think when they kind of gave me that sort of ultimatum, she like kind of looked at me like she wanted to talk about it. I was like, surgery now, let's go. Like I was ready. I was like, wheel me in right now. Take me in. Like I'm not doing chemo again. So uh, they kind of laughed. It's like, okay. So they wanted to give me a month to sort of do a, do a bit of a physical and mental reset. So they booked surgery for April 2nd. So I had kind of a month and a week to sort of physically calm down a bit from chemo. Um, and then we did surgery April 2nd. And it's interesting. The, I talked to the surgeon whose name is Dr. Nick Powers in London, another phenomenal person. Um, and my oncologist, I'll give her a shout out. Her name was Dr. Kylie Potvin. She was phenomenal as well. Nick and I had a conversation kind of in February back then. I was like, okay, surgeries in a month. Like, what do I do for the month? Like, what do you need for me? Because at that point in my head, I'm like reverting to athlete mode. I'm like physically prepare, mentally prepare. Like, what do we got to do here? <laughs> You're ready to get back in the weight room or whatever yeah, you had to do. Exactly. That's honestly what I was thinking. I was like, what do I need to do for the best chance of surgery to go well? And his advice was interesting. It was literally, he gave me one thing he needed for me. He was like, hit the table feeling as good mentally as you, as you possibly can. I was like, okay, I'll find a way to do that. So how did you prepare yourself mentally then for the surgery a month down the road in April at that point? Yeah. Well, at that point, I, uh, I was fortunate enough. I actually I for, took off for a week. That was kind of nice. I went down to Cuba for a week and parked my butt on a beach and just lied there. So I got a bit of sun, got a bit of just like away from, I think I needed some R and R. Yeah. I needed to get away from London from just the city in general, like I did the same drive during like from the hospital home, hospital home. And I just needed to get away. So as soon as I got the green light that my immune system was recovered from chemo, they're like, yeah, you're back to normal. You're good. Which was like maybe two weeks, I think when they said, yeah, you're fine. Um, so I took two weeks in London. I just, the first two weeks tried to change how I was eating. I started running again and running quite a bit actually. Cause I knew like I ballooned up to, like I said, 245 from 205. Um, yeah. so I needed to start bringing that number down, started running a lot, tried to clean up my diet. So that was the kind of the first two weeks. Then that week away was actually really nice. It just was a total mental reset for me. Um, just to get out of the city, get out of well, the country city didn't matter to me. Just needed a change. So get some sunshine. That was nice. And then, by that point, it was like, okay, we're a week out. And then from there, it was just, I tried to just live normal again. So I went back to Waterloo to see some of my friends and just, again, tried to put life to as close to normal as I could um, before surgery. And then by that point, I was feeling that month off was actually really nice. Um, I started feeling pretty good about myself again. From there, it was just, all right, surgery and this is it. Like I saw the finish line, if that makes sense, heading into that surgery. When you say you started feeling like yourself again, like before that point, were you feeling like off mentally? Like, were you having like racing thoughts and stuff like that? Like what types of thoughts were you having at that point? Like before you said you were mentally, you know, fit to go for surgery. That feeling of just like, I can go outside and like, I've, I feel, I think I'd like to think I have a pretty good appreciation for, for what I see when I go outside and I can look outside. I don't know if this makes any sense. I can go for a walk down the street and I can see 
the green and the trees and I can smell, oh, fresh air. Like I can feel wind on my face. When I had finished chemo, like I lost a lot of that. You lost like your senses, you mean? Like even the smelling senses and stuff? This is, sounds wishy-washy, but like I just feel like there was a lot of gray. Like colors didn't really stand out. Like I couldn't really, I don't know. Like you do lose some of your senses. Like I lost a bit of the taste. Um, like things would, like if I used a metal, I don't have one. Like if I had a metal fork to eat food, I wouldn't taste the food. I would taste the metallic fork, which is a side effect of chemo. Um, but like, so literally losing it, but then it was almost more like, I don't know if it was like, like a, maybe a, like a pseudo depression that I was in from it, but like, just, I couldn't like, you'd physically feel things like you could feel wind on your face. No, I, I know exactly what you're trying to say because I was actually talking to my girlfriend a little earlier this year about this. Like now that I'm, you know, clean and sober and stuff like that, because like, I was like, I, I was hard at it in addi my addiction for 20 plus years. And same thing, like we were just sitting in the park one day and I was just like, I, I, I just enjoy, I'm appreciating the ducks floating by down the river here. Like, and those are the types of things I didn't even appreciate or even just taking my daughter or son to the park, you know, I, I didn't fully appreciate it when I was in active addiction. But now that I'm in recovery and stuff, I appreciate all these things around me. Like you're saying the fresh air, the trees, the colors, you know, I just sit there and stare or go fishing by myself. And I, I appreciate it more now that I have a clear thoughts and like clear state of mind and stuff like that. For sure. I'm so glad that someone else can relate to this because I thought I was insane. Like I've tried to explain, <laughs> I've tried explaining this to people and people don't really get it. And that, that's on me to explain it a little better maybe, but I'm so glad that you can also like, like, you know what I'm talking about, right? Like, yeah, no, I totally get like, like before I, I, I'd be sitting in that park, let's say I'm high or whatever on the drugs that I was using. I wouldn't fully appreciate that duck or swan or Canada goose floating by as simple as it is, you know, but I just like, I just love this. Now I said to her one day, it's like, I can fully appreciate it. Like I'm appreciating life again. You know, this like life has meaning again to me. Whereas, you know, two years ago it didn't. Yeah. I, I just didn't want to be here anymore. Basically at the end, you know, I just wanted to die, you know, not commit suicide or anything, but I just felt like I was dying from the inside out really just, the abuse I was putting my body through sort of thing. Yeah. And it's crazy how different paths can get people like we can, we, you and I feel the same way. Like when we go to the park or to the lake or whatever, like we, I feel like you and I are at the same end point, maybe different paths to get there, but the same end point, which is crazy that we can all kind of experience no, most, those different routes. Most definitely. Yeah. So, so like after your surgery, so you had surgery then in April, uh, was that to take out your abdomen, your abdomen? So the abdominal lymph nodes, yeah. So they, okay. there, like I said, there were 34, three original tumors. Now we're down to one. But they said it's a very invasive surgery. So if we're going in, all 34 are coming out. We're not taking any chances. Oh, wow. Which, I mean, it's the process to get there is incredibly difficult. But once you're in there, whether you take out one or 34, it's kind of all the same. I'm smiling as I talk about that surgery, maybe because like there's so many funny things about that for me. I find a humor in a lot of things that are inappropriate, by the way, which rubs some people the wrong way. My one sister doesn't like my sense of humor, but whatever. So I laugh to get through uncomfortable things, by the way. I, I'm, I'm the same way. And, and sometimes maybe I should, I, I get my, my girlfriend points it out too. I'll try and make humor out of something when I'm trying to fix a situation or something and make humor or my ex, you know, same thing. She, 
You're always trying to make me laugh, but it's not funny right now. Chris. Yeah. So that I'm, we're, we're the same in that sense for sure. So um, that surgery was April 2nd. So they took out, so the, how this surgery works, I don't advise it, but you can go on YouTube and look up the surgery. Um, they booked the OR for 10 hours. Oh, so this isn't like you're in and out day surgery sort of thing. Like, you know, you're in and out in a couple hours. Yeah. So uh, the surgery itself, they booked the OR for 10. Um, so basically they put an incision from like, just like your sternum, like just below your chest down to like where your shorts, where your shorts sit on your waist, basically. So it's just a straight line down your abdomen and then they open your, your abdomen up. They cut, so they cut through the muscle, the fat, everything, they pull it apart. Then they take out all your organs because your lymph nodes are near your, your spine at the back. So they take out your stomach, your intestines. They just kind of set them in little baggies, like beside you on the operating table, like on your chest, just to clear the organs out. And then they just go in and pick out the 34 abdominal lymph nodes put all your organs back in, close the, I call them the saloon doors, your abdomen, close the saloon doors. <laughs> and then just, I had 42 staples, I think just basically up my stomach. Uh, I have a pretty cool scar to this day from it. Um, and then, yeah, that's the surgery in a nutshell. It sounds so easy, but <laughs> yeah. And so what's the recovery like from that? Like it probably wasn't simple either. And you're probably like, I want to get back at it right away too. Right. To get, get better. Eh? Yeah. But at that point, like, as soon as I was out of surgery and my head mentally, I didn't want to let myself feel this way, but I started to, I was like, this is it. Like we're done. Like it's over. But then as soon as that feeling kind of crept up, mental was like, eh, don't set yourself up for disappointment. Like we might have bad news still. I don't know. Like, is it okay to feel happy right now? Abdominal surgery, what I didn't appreciate before. And I definitely do now is everything you do, you're moving your stomach. So I was lying in the bed afterwards, just sitting there. And like, if you want I wanted to reach the night table. No, nope, can't do that. That hurts too much. Coughing was the worst experience. Like to cough, like that shake and you're like that hurt, laughing hurt, everything hurt. And like my family, again, when they'd come visit me, they know that I like to laugh. So they'd be like trying to tell me jokes. I was like, don't like, you can't make me laugh. Cause like, that the laughing my stomach hurts so much from the from the surgery and like when you're lying for that long they need you to cough because you can't have fluid build up so the nurses again my my girlfriend's a nurse god bless them i can't imagine what they go through i'd like to think i'm a patient person but the nurse the poor nurse every morning would come in and they'd have you hug a pillow and like you gotta cough like, I don't want to cough. And she's like, is this just to see like your pain level? No. And so they, their concern when you sit for this long is that you're going to get fluid building up in your lungs, like just sitting for oh, okay. too long. Right. Cause I'm in a hospital yeah. bed for three, four five days at this point. She's like, Nick, you got to cough to get the fluid out of your lungs. I'm like I'm not coughing. Like I don't want to, it hurts. She's like, you got to deal with it, buddy. So I did <laughs> reluctantly. But yeah, everything hurt. Like when the nurse would try to like roll you over to like wash you or change you at that point, I'm like, oh, this is terrible. But everything that was so painful about that first week of recovery in the hospital bed, I was like, it's over. It's over. We can deal with this. Like it's over at this point. The funniest experience, I think, of that hospital week was, um, so I had a catheter put in, obviously, because you can't, I can't move. So I had a catheter put in and after maybe like four days, they were like, okay, like 
we're going to take it out. You can go to, you can stand up to go to the washroom. Like you can start walking around a bit. Cause like at this point, like I was feeling a little bit better. Um, so I was like, yeah, okay. Makes sense. I was asleep and the night shift nurse came in and woke me up at like three in the morning. I was like, huh, what? Like I was dead asleep, right? Like in the middle of the night and the night shift nurse comes in and goes, I'm taking your catheter out. I was like, now, like, give me like some kind of heads up here. She's like, no, we're doing it now. (laughs) Um, I was like, okay. And how a catheter is supposed to come out is they are supposed to like put a, I don't know what they're called, a thing in, deflate it and then pull the catheter out. Right. So then she was hooking the, I forget what they're called. Anyways, so she was poking it up to deflate the balloon. And then she goes, huh? Like, sorry, huh? We're not supposed to hear huh when we're doing that down there. She goes, no, well, it's just like the balloon's not deflating as much as it should. I was like, okay. And she didn't say anything. So I was like, okay, we'll try this again later. Um, and she, and then didn't say anything. And then she was like, okay. Uh, she gave me a popsicle stick. She was like, bite this. I was like, what? And then she was like, one, two. And on two, she pulled it out. And, Just yanked and it. stupid me, I, in my head, was preparing for a catheter to be as long as a penis is. I was not in my head thinking, oh, the bladder's like way back in there. So she pulled and then I was like, oh, and then she kept pulling. And I was like, how far is a bladder from where you're pulling from? <laughs> oh my goodness, it hurts so much. And I swear at three in the morning or two in the morning, whenever it was, I woke up the entire wing of the hospital with that scream. Like I'm confident. And then when it was done, I was like, like, I felt like I just run a marathon. Like like, so (laughs) like panting. I was like, that was terrible. That was relief. (laughs) Oh, that was, that was something. So, but anyways, we got through that. So that was the hospital week. This is funny actually. So when I was, see, I keep saying it was funny. I can laugh in hindsight. When I first woke up, they keep, I had a little clicker for the morphine that they had me hooked up to. I had uh, what are those things called that women can get before they give birth? The spinal tap? Is that what it's called? I know what you're talking about. I know exactly what you're talking Sorry, about. Sorry, women are laughing at us. Epidural. epidural. Thank you. I was going to say women yeah. are laughing at us as we're talking about this. <laughs> so they, they gave me an epidural, which is, was terrible going in, by the way. But then once it was in, I was grateful for it. So they gave me an epidural and they could keep track after the surgery of how many times I clicked for morphine. And uh, they, the first day, they had, someone had dosed me as if I was a 150 pound female, not a, at that point, like 230-ish pound male. So the, I didn't know that at the time, right? So I'm clicking, clicking, clicking. And they were like, Nick, in the last 10 minutes, you click like 110 times. Like what is happening here? So then they redid the math on how much they were dosing me with. And they're like, Oh, we were a little short here. They fixed that up fortunately. But then by honestly, by day two, I was like, I'm done. Like get me off of this stuff. Cause like, yeah, it's not fun to be on this stuff, especially the opiates and stuff like that. Like I I know for myself and then, and if you're an addict like myself in and out, like you want that. And it's not a fun thing to come off of either. I have had friends that have come off heroin and stuff and it's really not fun and especially if you get addicted, I've seen other hockey players, you know, oh, like, yeah. you know, I know he's passed away now, but Bob Probert's a prime example, you know, and he was, and he, his wife had to go around and hide all the stuff around the house for him because he could, because she had to like dose it to him through the day. Yeah. Yeah. It's terrible. It's terrible. It's terrible stuff. Like by then, like the first two days I was like, I need this. Like I'm in so much pain. And then by day two, it was like, you get foggy and like, you can't think and like people are talking to you, but you like can't you hear muffledness almost. And like, I just, 
I didn't like it. I was feeling way too cloudy and foggy. So I was like, let's, let's change this and let's try something else here. And that in like, it's great that people raise the awareness that they do around the addiction of painkillers because I knew sitting in the bed, I was like, I knew the difference between I need this, this is helping me. Like my back is killing me right now versus I think I can get off of it now. And the reason that I was trying to be so aware of ah, I can get off of it now is that I heard all these stories from other people, other athletes, other addicts about the dangers of painkillers. And I was like, in my head, I was thinking, I need to get off of this as soon as possible. Um, so that's why by kind of day two, entering day three, I was like, I got to get off of this. Like, I knew it, I was willing to put up with pain at that point um, to, to move away from, from, from morphine because I just didn't like how I was feeling. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I was in the hospital for like five ish days. And then from there, like they kind of said, all right, you're, you're good. Like you can go home if you want. Uh, that was kind of it. Like that was April, whatever, April 7th ish at this point. So I was home, kind of got back to normal. I took that summer off. So I was supposed to be, I was supposed to be in school that summer. So I, I deferred that term. So I took the summer off and I actually went out to Alberta. I, uh, I got a job bartending of all things at a uh at a at a resort in canmore alberta which is oh it's gorgeous out there i have a couple of buddies that live oh just you fall in love so fast with that the town the atmosphere the energy the just the mountains everything so i was in uh i was in canmore so i spent summer there got to do some golfing some some hiking some a little bit of everything and just kind of Again, it was just getting away from London and Ontario, I think, in general. Was it another reset for you after that surgery? Just, I need to mentally and physically reset here. Yeah. And, you know, find myself again. Yeah, it was. It really was. Um, I just needed to switch up my location and just be somewhere new. That's all I wanted was just be somewhere new. Like, in a way, it was almost like if I was somewhere that wasn't familiar, then it was like I was almost removing myself from the situation like maybe a bit of denial, like that, that was someone else didn't happen to me. Like I'm, I'm somewhere new now. And then I think by the end of that summer, I was ready to, I was ready to come back, which was a good sign for me. Like kind of by the end of August, like, yeah, like I'm ready to pick life back up again. Like I'm ready to go back to school. I'm ready to finish my degree and be with my friends again. Um, so that summer was, you know, like you said, as much of a physical reset it was as it was, it was a mental one more so I think. So yeah, then just kind of came back to life in the fall and that was the fall of 2015 and then life's happened since. Um, Everything's been fine, cancer free. All my tumor markers have been great. So yeah, that's kind of where my cancer journey ends maybe. I don't know. So no, that's awesome. And then we had, you know, in talks before recording here and stuff of that, you, you had talked about you're, you're huge on uh doing like ultra marathons and like lots of running now and stuff like that, you know, tell us a little bit about that. Like what got you into that? Like doing these ultra 50 K marathons and stuff. Yeah. So the running thing started, I was always decent at running, but it really started when I was trying to lose that weight between chemo and that surgery. Cause I was like, okay, we got to do something. And it was kind of March ish. So I could go outside, but I was, I had a treadmill in my parents' basement that had some cobwebs on it. So I dusted those off. So that's kind of when the running started and then it just kind of never left. So that's how the running passion. And you said it works really good and it helps you with your mental health and stuff and your mental well-being. Oh yeah. Like if it's a short run, like what I call short an hour or less, I'll listen to a, like I have audible, I'll listen to a book, a podcast, some music, whatever. 
But then I also like going for the long runs too and just no headphones, just go with an open road. Don't bring any devices, just go. Just go because it's like the first maybe 15, 20 minutes, you're like, uh, this is terrible, like this hurts, I don't like this. And then you kind of just shut all that out. And then you just start to think like a thought will come floating in. You can think about it for a bit and then it will go floating by and you kind of pick up the next one. So I really liked that about running. So yeah, I got into, I ran my first half marathon, official half marathon back in 2018. Then I ran at the, that was the Scotiabank waterfront in Toronto. And then I ran the full one in 2019. Um, What else did I do? Oh, in 2019, in August of 2019, I was coming up to my five year anniversary. So last year I was coming up on my five year diagnosis. Like I want to do something really cool. Um, and I'd heard about ultra running from a few different people through audiobooks and the podcast that I liked. My cousin's done it too. He trained and did one last fall. It was like a 52 K one. And, and it wasn't like on the open road. It was through the woods and stuff like that. It was an off-road one. <laughs> then you're mixing in trees, rocks, gravel. Yeah. Those are okay. Well, I'll double back, but I'll come back to that. So yeah. I want to do something really cool. So it's like, what's, what's really cool. So it's like, well, five years, 50 miles. In my head, I was like, that, that sounds cool. So 50 miles is like 80 point something kilometers. So I was like, let's try this. So I got, literally, I took my Visa card, my debit card, uh, a Camelback with some water and some snacks. And I took off at like five in the morning. And I ran from, for anyone who knows the region, I went from Waterloo up to Elmira over to, um, not Woolwich, the other one, Wellesley down to New Hamburg and then back to Waterloo. And uh, yeah, it was awesome. I went, no headphones, just kind of went open road. And um, it was fun till it wasn't fun, um, which was somewhere (laughs) around New Hamburg. It wasn't fun anymore. And uh, I was reduced to pretty much a walk. And it was was awesome though. Did you finish it or call for a ride? I finished it fortunately, but there was definitely a pause. Um, there's a fruit yeah. stand for, sorry, if anyone's not from Waterloo, they're going to say, what? There's a fruit stand by the Costco on Herb Street in Waterloo. I know exactly you what know, it's talking about. Hurley's? Is that what it's called? It's like if you're leaving yeah, the, Waterloo, you go past Costco yeah. down the hill. There's a fruit stand right yeah. there. There's a house just past the fruit stand. So if you're leaving the city, it goes fruit stand house. And if you look at there's that house, there's the driveway and a ditch right beside it. I was running towards Costco and I was near the end at this point. It's like a mile 43, 44. And I was running, running, trudging along. I kind of just like looked at the ditch and then back at the road and then back at the ditch again. And without even thinking, I just kind of like stumbled towards it. And I actually fell in that ditch. I lied there for like, it was like 5 p.m., 6 p.m. at that point. I think I was lying there for like 20 minutes and I didn't do anything. I wasn't cruising whatever on my phone. I was just lying there. I was like, Oh boy. (laughs) And at that point it was like, physically I was done. But then meant when I was in that ditch, it was almost like, I don't know. It's like, kind of like, um, like, um, it's like, I don't know. Something happened there where an epiphany. Yeah, maybe. Whereas like, I I have a hard time saying like, I love you to myself. And at that point I was just kind of like, man, I love you. You know what I mean? Like, you know, when you're, Maybe you don't, but maybe you do. But when you're like, have that moment when you have a few drinks with your buddies, like, ah, I love you, man. Like, I, yeah, yeah, I, I know, I know the feelings that you're telling you, you get a little more open, yeah. or you, get, you know, you get a little more carefree. So I, guess. I was just so exhausted. I think I was at that point where I just kind of had that moment with myself. 
And then eventually I got up and started walking and there's an awful looking hill there. That's the other thing about running is I've learned to appreciate how hilly some cities are. Cause like you yeah. might drive down that hill a hundred times because like, yeah, yeah, I think there's a hill there, but when you're running it, you're like, there is a hill there. Um, I know my son will tell me that too. That'd be a cool hill to go down, down on your skateboard or bike, but going back up it. Not fun. <laughs> so there was a nice lady and her daughter actually that as I was walking up this hill, they kind of pulled over and I think I had blood on my knees from that fall in the ditch. <laughs> I just looked so dirty and sweaty and gross. And they kind of, they pulled over literally on the hill. And they're like, do you want to ride somewhere? I was like, no, nah, I'm okay. I just got a few miles to go. And they just kind of looked at me like, you sure? I was like, yeah, yeah. I got my phone. If I'm in trouble, I'll call an Uber. Thank you. So I knew at that point, I was like, I probably look terrible right now. So I managed, I walked in the rest of the way. So we got there. So that was fun. So that was in August. And then that September, October, whenever the Toronto marathon is, I did that one, which at that point was a joke. I was like, I just ran 50 miles. Now you want me to run 26? Ha, no problem. And there's probably not many hills on the Toronto oh, it's, marathon. It's all flat it is land a, downtown there. It is a there. flat course. <laughs> and I love it. I love every second of it. Um, so I did that. And then... Um, what else did I do? So this past April was my five-year cancer-free because um, that April 2nd date is the one I use for cancer-free. Yeah. Congratulations on that, thank by you, the way. Thank you. Yeah, five years is a big milestone. So I was like just so happy to get there. Um, so that was now that was at the start of quarantine, basically. So then someone, my friends know that if they put some, they put an idea in my head, like they know that they can get me to bite on something. So someone said, which is we sound just alike, even though we've taken different paths in life. That's what my girlfriend, like she'll say, Chris, what the hell are you building in the living room now? Like a spaceship yeah. or something. Cause if I get an idea in my head, I'm going to do festers it. <laughs> and it just kind of sits there. Yeah. So someone, one of my friends sent me, there's a guy who I've read his book and I've listened to a lot of his podcasts. He's a pretty cool dude or seems like a pretty cool dude. His name is David Goggins. And uh, he does this running challenge that he created called the Goggins 48. So you do a four hour or a four mile run every four hours for 48 hours straight. So it works out That's being, crazy. it works out being like a 48, 48 miles in total. But yeah, so I, that was someone floated it to me. I was like, I think I can do that. Rather than do the 50 miles straight, I basically did 50 miles, but in crazy segments. So yeah, it was like, would you choose like a different route though for each four miles or would you just do the same one or would you do different, different, different ones? And I, <laughs> I tried to find the flattest ones and I live, <laughs> I live right near like Laurier and Waterloo universities. Like I live kind of in that yeah. area. And again, like you think, yeah, that's a flat area. Isn't, isn't it? It's not like, it's really not. So I was just trying to, every time I went out, I'd be like, maybe this will be a flatter way. And you're already committed. So you got to go. <laughs> I went at noon, 4 p.m., 8 p.m., midnight, uh, 4 a.m., 8 a.m., like that, or yeah, yeah, that cycle basically. So would you rest in between, like have a little snooze? A little yeah, nap? so my routine, I got, doesn't matter if it was day or night, my routine would basically be, it would take me kind of 35-ish minutes to do the run. So by the time I got back inside, it was basically the same thing every time. I would chug water immediately, try to snack on something, shower, go to bed and just shut my eyes. Even if it was for, even if I couldn't sleep, I would just lie down and just try to like not do anything. And that was it. And I just did that continuously for 48 hours. It was pretty cool. It was really cool. Like those Saturday night, like 
running at midnight down King Street in Waterloo. It's a ghost town at that. Well, because it's in during the quarantine pandemic. That's exactly it, right? Like, because you kind of forget you're tired. You just woke up. You're not really thinking straight. And I was like, oh, I'm going to run down King Street. Like, it'll be kind of cool to see, like, the energy and all that. And then I'm like, oh, wait, it's COVID. <laughs> there's, there's nothing open. Because, like, normally you think of Waterloo on a Saturday after exams, like in April, like, oh, it is packed to the, you know what, like just students everywhere, like energy. And I'm running down King Street at midnight. I'm like, there is no one. Like there, the only thing I saw was region of police water, region of Waterloo police, like just kind of cruising up and down the street. I was like, this is so weird. But uh, yeah, so that was night one and then night two. And then a couple of times I had friends that from a social distance uh, showed up and ran with me, which was pretty cool. Yeah. So, and then I had lots of friends online supporting me. So that was that one. And then, uh, I'm gearing up for one actually this weekend, I'm going to try to do another just straight 50 miler. Um, so that'll be, uh, that's the plan for this weekend. Um, so yeah. And the reason, so yeah, you asked, sorry, why do I do these? That's a great question. And before you do it, you have to have an answer why, because when you hit your breaking point, if you don't have a good answer to that question, you'll quit hundred percent every time. For me, it was almost like a reminder to, to harden myself or sharpen myself mentally. I don't know, when you finish chemo, when I finished chemo and that surgery, I felt like I had such like this appreciation and so much like passion and love for everything. And I was just so energetic. I'm like, oh my God, I'm alive today. Like we're alive today, let's go. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Alive today, let's go. And then it's like with anything, kind of as time goes on, you almost kind of lose that, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. So I, was, I felt like I was losing that a bit, kind of by year four. So I wanted to do something where I didn't, I, I wanted to pick something hard enough that I was like, I don't know if I can do this or not. Like realistically, like, can I do this? Uh, it's questionable. I wanted to pick something that kind of fit that range because I wanted to basically put myself back in hell if that the hell of chemo, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, you're putting, but but it's good for your physical and mental health. What you're doing though, inst- yeah. Like, instead here, instead of going through that hell of the pain and stuff from the chemo. Yeah, it is. It, so for me, it was almost a way to like I wanted to put myself in a situation where I would remind myself of that physical and mental anguish, that that fatigue, that the the difficulty of the situation. Because in a way, I feel like if I put myself in those hard situations, it's almost like me sharpening myself, me make, reminding myself. And then it's like, I do, definitely do notice after I finish those, those incredibly difficult physical things, it's almost like a reset where it resets you back to that, I don't want to use the word primal, but like just that, that like energy feeling, you know what I mean? Where it's like, oh, like, oh dang, like I appreciate things again. <laughs> And it just kind of, it hum, it's definitely humbling, which is good because we all need that. Um, but it's, it's just a humbling experience physically, mentally, and just makes me, helps me reset and kind of ground myself again with my sim- simple appreciation for little things that maybe I start to lose over time. Um, so it's just a good reminder for me, I think. No, that makes sense for sure, Nick. And that's amazing that you do that and it, and it helps you mentally, physically, and you're all around mental, mental well-being and stuff. It sounds yeah. like. So, well, what what are three things uh, you could tell the audience that that would help you or help you help yourself on a day-to-day basis with your mental and physical health? Mental health. You know, what do you do for your mental health on a day-to-day basis to help yourself? 
I have to move physically. I have to move around. Whether it's a walk, as soon as, like what I've started doing actually during the pandemic, which has been really good for me, I think, is I'll get up, drink some water, drink glass water and go. I'll go for a walk. If it's around the block, if it's a little bit longer, whatever. I gotta, but I gotta move. I gotta be active, especially now that we're in quarantine and I live in a pretty small apartment here in Waterloo. Um, it's small. It's really small and it can get, make you go a little bit stir crazy. So I just need to move every day physically. And I feel like if I can do that at least once, it helps me. I don't know. You just feel better afterwards, whether it's, even if it's a walk, it doesn't have to be a run or a crazy workout or anything. Just like, I got to get outside. I got to feel the sun on my face. I just got to sweat a little bit, just got to sweat, you know? So that's the biggest one for me. And that works for me. And I understand not everyone physically or uh, maybe even mentally can get themselves to that point, which is awful. That's such a terrible thing that like, I, I don't, wouldn't wish upon anyone, but if you can move in any way, shape or form, like I would just say move every day and just sweat somehow. So that's the biggest one for me. For me, the other big one is social. Um, like you, we've kind of talked about here, like I gotta, I gotta feel the energy of other people. So yeah, maybe I can't do that quite the same way I'd like to right now during COVID. I think just the energy of other people around me. So if it's calling a friend or just interacting with a friend that way or FaceTime or whatever, um, or even if it's just going outside and like strangers on the street that I don't just saying hi to someone going by, I, I do that all the time. Like, you know, you never know what someone else is going through you know, whoever you're passing and stuff like that, you don't, you gotta, you gotta take yourself out of your shoes and maybe they're having a bad day and you saying hi to them uplifted them, you know, and it might make their day. I try to say hi to as many people as I can or good morning or good afternoon or something. And a lot of people looking like, huh, why are you talking to me? But I don't care. Like I've felt, I feel a lot less like shame in those little things. Like, you know, we're like, like I can't, that's weird. I'm not comfortable doing that. I don't care anymore. So or at the very least, like I give people the wave as like, I'll stare at them, make like make eye contact with me, make eye contact with me. And then as soon as they do, it's like, give them a wave. So at least I'll do that just to kind of try to connect with people. Um, so physically get moving, try to connect with people socially. I think the other big thing for me that I notice is I can, I can really tell how I'm doing based on how I'm eating. And I think for me, the biggest switch that I had to make was I used to, my mindset around diet and eating used to be, can't have this, can't have that limit, how much you eat or drink this limit, how much you eat or drink that limit, 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 limit. No, no, no. That used to be my mindset around my diet. And then I totally flipped it based on some. Was that more as a hockey player? It was. Yeah. Or like when you were playing. Yeah. Hockey? That was the athlete in me. And that was the, the, the kind of how I'd always approached eating and food was you can't have this, can't have that. So I kind of said, forget that. All I switched was rather than looking at what I can't have, all I said was every day, try to do this. Drink three liters of water, try to eat a serving of dark leafy greens. And what was the other big thing I always tried to do? From there it was like, try to, well, I did try to limit my meat consumption, but so dark leafy greens, water, and just try to eat enough healthy food so I would make sure that I, every day I would try to eat either eggs, like something like eggs for breakfast or a bowl of oatmeal. I'd always try to eat a lunch and a dinner that was like healthy. So quinoa, vegetables, chicken, or rice, vegetables, chicken, something like that. Because I knew then that way, if it was like every day I've had water, I've had something green, and I've had three meals that are healthy, 
And then from there, it was like, if I'm hungry enough to eat chips or ice cream or whatever, fine, fine. Uh, you're, you're allowed to. You're, you're allowed to indulge. Once yeah, in exactly. <laughs> from there, it was like, fine, go. I don't care. Because at least I'd gotten that base layer of good stuff in me every day. Um, and I found that I had way better control of what I was eating if I did that. Rather than saying, don't eat the ice cream, don't eat the ice cream, don't eat, you know what I mean? I kind of, I threw that out and I was just like, I'm just going to eat these healthy things and then anything else I eat, fine, we'll deal with it. <laughs> and I found that helped me a lot because I know from talking to other people who really want to get control of their body type or get control of their diet, they always think like, that's how you have to treat it. Like, don't, 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 don't. But that's like, it doesn't work because eventually it might work for a small portion of time. For me, it didn't work. Um, it might work for a couple of weeks or a month or whatever, but eventually I feel like that's just not sustainable but I feel like it's way more sustainable to just say, I don't care what you eat, just every day try to eat this. That's all you got to do, Nick. Yeah, as long as you try and eat something healthy every day, it's okay to, you know, have a bowl of ice cream or have that little bowl of chips or whatever in the evening while you're watching a movie or whatever you're doing in the 100%. evening. You know, it's okay to, you know, go off course once in a while. There's nothing wrong nope, with it. <laughs> exactly. So that would, that would, those would be my biggest, three biggest things for me. Sweat, in some way, shape or form, sweat every day try to have a connection with other people around you and whatever you're doing from an eating standpoint, at least try to get a few things in you every day where it's like, okay, at least I got, I got water in me today. I got something green in me today and I ate a couple healthy meals and then whatever else you're going to do, do yeah. Whatever else you do, do, but those would be the three biggest things for me. Nice. That's amazing, Nick. So in the last 30 days, what would you say, you've done that's made the biggest impact on your life in the last 30 days? Biggest impact on my life in the last 30 days. Like something you've done, you know? Yeah. It's an interesting, that's a good question. I'm going to write that one down to ask other people going forward in conversations. It's a good one to ask the women's team whenever you guys start. Yeah, up again. exactly. What have you guys, <laughs> yeah, whenever we're allowed to. Um, yeah. I think it's not so much one monumental thing for me. I think it's just the small victories and my small victory for me is fighting to be honest with myself. I know through a lot of time and therapy and thinking on it that I have an ego issue. Um, and a lot of that I know for sure comes from sport, but it comes from a lot of other things for me too. I have a problem with just being comfortable in my own skin and it kind of goes back to what I mentioned earlier about, oh, just love yourself. Like, it's not hard. Love yourself. I have a hard, hard time with that. Um, so for me, I think just the small victories when I find them along the way of just being comfortable in my own skin and being comfortable with who I am as a person. So if that's catching myself in a moment in a conversation with someone or just thinking in my own head, like just checking myself, or if it's something simple, like just giving a straight up answer to someone that I'm not comfortable with, like just really owning who I am as a person. So if I find those little small victories in the last 30 days and they're, they're not always there. Sometimes I have to look back on it, like reflect on a day or on a moment and be like, yeah, we could have been better there, Nick. Um, so it's not perfect by any means, but it's something that I'm getting a lot better at. That's perfect. Like it's something you can notice though in yourself. And I notice these little things in myself too, you know, like if you're honest with everyone, you know, life goes a lot easier, you know, even though you don't want to be honest, you know, about that thing or you, you, you know, excuse my language fucked up, but as long as you're honest about what just happened, you know, 
it, it goes a lot, a long, a lot longer ways, you know, down the road. If you're honest about it from the get go, instead of them finding out through another source. Isn't that, I'm laughing. I laughed when you said that because like in my head, like that seems so obvious, but it took me a long time to learn that lesson to just like own it. Just own it, Nick, is what I have to say to myself sometimes. Like, I'm th- literally throwing my hands up right now because it's just, like, just be honest. And the right, and how I've started to look at it is the right people will be in your life because they, if you're just totally open and honest with who you are and what you've, where you've been and where you want to go, the right people will stay. And they'll stay in your life and your life will be way better for it because then they, they just know, like they know everything and you can look at them and be like, Hey, they're still here. So I think that's something that I had to learn, which sounds so stupid. Like, how do you not know that? But it's true. Like I got caught up in my teens and my early twenties and my mid twenties and like trying to, I still do it. I have to be honest. I still do it. But like you just get caught up that fake persona, the ego, the fake persona, the look at me, like, look at all that I accomplished and all that I, all that I do. Cause you just want to feel, well, for me, it's feeling validation from other people. Like that's what I seek out when I do it. And I know that now, I don't know, like you just hit the nail on the head, like just be brutally honest. And if they can't handle that or they're not the right person in your life, fine. Like they weren't meant to be in your life. That's okay. Um, the right people will still stick around and will still be in your life. If you can just have that brutal honesty, truth comes out always. Yeah, no, no, for sure, Nick. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show today, man. I truly appreciate your time, you know, and for sharing your story, you know, it was definitely a story of strength, you know, experience and hope. Thank man. you. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. Um, I hope someone can find, even if it's just one little tidbit of something that they can take from this, then. And that's my goal at the end of every, you know, episode or every show I do, or, you know, my whole podcast, if I can help one person, that's all that matters, man. At the end of the day, I've done my job. Yeah. That's awesome. Keep doing what you're doing. Yeah. Thanks, man. Thank you so much for coming on the show tonight, Ryan. I'm really appreciative of that, man.